We abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. My name is Stuart Richardson. Landscapes of Consciousness will highlight those who fight to protect the land, a sharing of hopeful visions and stories that bring us back to the land, a place that heals and replenishes us in a world that is in rapid transition. My hope is that we come to know we are a single whole with each other and nature, that when we hurt nature, we are hurting ourselves. I'm so privileged to have Bruce Gagnon on the line. He's a coordinator of Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, a longtime peace advocate and organizer. He's also contributes to a blog called Organizing Knows. Hey, uh, Bruce, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Stuart. Now, we have been talking about Russia, me and you, probably since 2014, and we were been worried the whole time that something terrible would come to pass and now here we are there's a full-scale invasion our mainstream media acts like history started yesterday so uh, can you do a basic timeline for our listeners to bring them up to speed how did we get here starting I guess in 2014 yeah in 2014 the United States orchestrated this was during the Obama administration Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and the Assistant Secretary of State, Victoria Newland, who's married to Robert Kagan, one of the neocons and one of the founders of PNAC, the Project for New American Century, that basically orchestrated the war in Iraq in 2003. Victoria Newland, uh, Assistant Secretary of State in the Obama administration, was put in charge with oversight by Vice President Joe Biden of a coup d'etat in uh, Kiev, Ukraine, in the capital. Mm. And it had been under production for some years with funding from the CIA, from the National Endowment for Democracy, from George Soros's foundations, and other sources as well, particularly from Europe. In, in the western side of Ukraine, right along the Poland border, there are nationalists, or some people call them neo-Nazis. I call them Nazis because they wear swastikas on their bodies as tattoos. They wear swastikas on their helmets, on their tanks that they drive. They have swastikas. So mm -hmm. I call them Nazis. And I have actually seen them when I've uh, gone to Ukraine myself. But anyway, during this coup, these Nazis came from western Ukraine along the Poland border and became very violent and helped push this coup through, if you will. And afterwards, three or four of their leaders from the Azov Battalion and the right sector, as they're called, were put in positions, high positions in the new government. New, new government was essentially selected by the uh, United States. They chose who was going to be running this government. And they picked a guy named Yatsenuk, who was a IMF World Bank guy that was all about austerity cuts and selling off countries' assets and everything else. So that's who the United States installed in the new government of Ukraine. And so one of the first things that was done with this new government was to call the speaking of Russian in Ukraine illegal. Well, half the country speaks Russian as their primary language, mostly from the middle of Ukraine eastward right up to the Russian border. Mm -hmm. And so throughout this Russian-speaking region of Ukraine, people started holding nonviolent, peaceful marches and uh, referendum signature collection uh, 
campaigns to say we want a federated Ukraine and we want to be able to elect our own local leaders rather than have them appointed by the central government in Kiev. We want to be able to speak Russian. And as they were doing this, the Nazis were sent from western Ukraine, where they predominate, to eastern Ukraine, and they began attacking these people. Eastern Ukraine, particularly in what's called the Donbass region, Lugansk, Donetsk, those two big cities that are right on the Russian border. It's a coal mining region. And so the coal miners came out of the mines, and they picked up whatever they could find. Maybe they had a shotgun, maybe they picked up sticks, whatever. And they tried to defend them, their families, literally their families, against these marauding Nazis who were robbing people, shooting them, stealing, you know, raping, you know, just all the really bad stuff that you can imagine. And as we began to learn, the United States set up a military training base in western Ukraine where these Nazis again predominate. And to this base, U.S. Special Forces Army were sent from Fort Carson, Colorado to this base to train these Nazis and bring them into a new unit of special forces created within the Ukrainian army. And they were given new fancy uniforms so they wouldn't be wearing their Nazi you know, gear and everything else. And then again, they were sent back to the east to attack people. And so since 2014, there's been this line of contact right along the edge of the Donbass with the Nazis on one side and what grew into what I call self-defense forces in the Donbass, Russian ethnic people. Now, the media calls them Russian separatists, but I call them self-defense forces because Mm -hmm. they were literally trying to protect their families, their communities, as these Nazis who were supplied, trained, equipped, and really directed by U.S., U.K., and NATO forces. And so they've been shelling the Donbass region since 2014, More than 14,000 people, mostly civilians, have been killed at their hands. And nobody has said much about it. Mainstream media has not said much about it. The European powers have not said much about it. The Americans have not said much about it. Mm. And even the peace movement hasn't said much about it. And I've been working on this issue since that time, really since late 2013, even before the coup happened. You could see the rumblings beginning to happen at that time. But over the last eight years, we've seen atrocities. We've seen thousands of innocent people killed in the eastern part. We've seen people burned inside of buildings. So do we? Uh, they just said, oh, it's a bit of a conflict in the east. Can you give us a little bit more information about what's actually been happening right in the eastern parts of Ukraine and the Donbass? Well, let me first say that the shelling, they were hitting civilian targets. They took out the airport first, the, the airport in Donetsk. And they took out bus stations, rail stations, water treatment plants, sewer plants. All these things are violations of international law, by the way. Um, They took out uh, churches, hospitals, schools, daycare centers, senior citizen centers, residential apartment blocks, rural homes in rural areas in the Donbass region. I've been there. I went there in 2019, invited by a labor leader that I know. I've been to Russia three times and to Crimea three times. And so uh, I organized a study tour and took 25 people in, 25, in, in, in 2019. We went to Moscow, Crimea, and then St. Petersburg, trying to learn more, trying to understand more about all of this. 
Mm. And so, again, this is something that I've been directly working on for all these years. But we've got to ask the deeper question. What's the ultimate goal of the U.S. and NATO? What's the real reason that's driving all of this stuff? And that, I think, is really important to explore. And I would suggest one of the main reasons is climate change. Because of climate change and the melting Arctic ice, what we're finding is that the Western Resource Extraction Corporations, they want to get up in the Arctic and drill, baby, drill. But as it turns out, Russia has the largest land border with the Arctic of any country on the planet. And so I believe what's driving this whole situation is a desire to do to Russia what NATO did in both Yugoslavia and Iraq. And that was take a country and break it up into smaller pieces. In the case of Yugoslavia, NATO did, did, uh, during the Bill Clinton administration, they did uh, a series of bombings of of Belgrade, especially with depleted uranium. Uh, Peace activists in America were absolutely quiet. There were very few of us that were out on the street opposing that. But they broke that country into pieces, balkanized it, they say. Mm. And then in Iraq in 2003, with shock and awe, we saw the U.S. give the northern part of Iraq, broke Iraq into some pieces, and gave the northern part to the Kurds, the northern part where a lot of oil is located. And then the Western oil corporations then went in and made deals with the Kurds and started taking Iraqi oil. Mm. And so I think that's the plan for Russia. Regime change, break it up into smaller countries so that the Western oil corporations will have uh, better access to it. And how do I come to this conclusion in addition to the logic behind this Hmm. idea, you know, or the bad logic, I should say? There's also a study by the RAND Corporation. The RAND Corporation was famous during the Vietnam War for doing the secret um, Pentagon Papers study that told the secret history of how... The government, the media, uh, you know, the Congress, everybody was lied to uh, in order to create the pretext for the war in Vietnam. So this now this Rand Corporation study called Overextending and Unbalancing Russia, Addressing the Impact of Cost-Imposing Options. And so they have a very thorough plan to do various techniques to demonize Russia, Mm -hmm. to get the world to hate them, to get the world to put sanctions on them, to destroy their economy, to use Ukraine as a vehicle to destabilize Russia by arming uh, the Ukrainian government's military, which now includes, of course, many Nazis. They brought in mercenaries from all over the world, including the jihadists, who are now unemployed after much of what's, uh, you know, the end of the war in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And so they've been brought uh, from also from Syria, from the Kosovo region. These jihadists have been brought, and they're now on the front lines attacking yeah. the Donbass region as well. So all of this is underway, and virtually nobody in the peace movement knows anything about it. And so that when Russia... For all these years, I can tell you, since 2014 and even before, it really goes back to 2007, Russia was saying this NATO expansion up to our borders is is bad. It creates insecurity for us. 
Right. You promised us, you the West, promised us at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. U U.S. Secretary of State Jim Baker then promised Mikhail Gorbachev that NATO would not expand one inch towards Russia if Russia would agree to the reunification of Germany, right. East, East and West Germany. So Russia agreed under the condition that NATO would not expand. They would feel more safe that way. But then when Bill Clinton was in office, he started a project called NATO Enhancement and has been, the U.S. has been expanding NATO ever since. The U.S. For really sure. runs NATO. The, uh, the NATO countries are basically lackeys. Right. I, I want to touch on a, a couple things. And before I ask this question, I just want to say before I get uh, all kinds of hate in my inbox, I've been fighting against um, this aggression for years. I've been trying to educate people and I in no way support Russia going into any country, any country invading any other country, but the cartoonish depiction of Russia as pure evil and Ukraine as a friendly, democratic, well-run state is, is just ridiculous. Can you can you talk a little bit about uh, the government in the Ukraine and how they treat opposition and opposition news networks and, you know, to kind of dispel this illusion that Ukraine is some beautiful, friendly, democratic state and being sieged by an evil empire. Well, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, is a comedian. He had a TV program. He was very popular. And one of the richest oligarchs in uh, Ukraine, a guy named Kolomoysky, uh, made him president. Kolomoysky owned a TV station. He promoted him widely. Uh, Zelensky ran on the platform of ending the conflict in the Donbass, having peace in the country. And so he was elected overwhelmingly against the previous president who had been exercising this war against the Russian ethnic people in the eastern Ukraine and the Donbass. And so Zelensky, since he's in, been in power, had his life threatened repeatedly by the Nazis, and he was basically given in to them. And now he takes orders from the U.S. and NATO and does whatever they tell him. Uh, he's uh, closed down uh, about a dozen uh, independent media stations inside of Ukraine in the last year. Uh, anybody that challenged him or questioned him, anybody that called for peace in the Donbass, you know, through the intervention of the diplomatic intervention, I should say, the diplomatic intervention of Russia, Germany, France, and Belarus, a agreement was created called the Minsk Agreements, which said, all right, this line of contact where these Nazis are with these weapons that have been given to them by NATO, U.S. and NATO, those weapons have to be pulled back. And the government in Kiev, the capital, has to negotiate a federated situation for the Donbass. This was agreed in negotiations, and Ukrainian government signed this agreement but they've never honored one single element of that, of that thing. And so this is where we are today. Uh, and so the shelling has again escalated in the recent months. Uh, it kind of ebbs and flows since 2014, but in the recent months, it's really escalated dramatically. I believe that the United States, NATO, uh, UK knew that if they escalated the situation, that Putin would eventually react. Putin has, in the recent months, you know, there's been a flurry of mm -hmm. meetings with all the various players, you know, 
you know, a lot of politicians flying from one country to the other, talking and trying to avert any any wars. Putin asked for the following things: stop NATO expansion, roll it back, guarantee that Ukraine will not be a NATO country. Romania and Poland, by the way, which are NATO countries, now have inside their country missile launch facilities built by the U.S. Pentagon that can fire nuclear-capable Tomahawk cruise missiles that are first-strike weapons from either of those two launch facilities in Poland and Romania. Now, just imagine for a moment if Russia or China were building nuclear-capable missile launch facilities on the border of the United States from either Canada or Mexico. How would the United States respond? I believe the U.S. would go ballistic. So I think that the Russian demands are fair. The Russian demands make sense. They're peaceable demands saying, let's de-escalate the situation. Let's move the U.S. and NATO back. Let's uh, guarantee that you're not going to fill up Ukraine with all kinds of missiles aimed at us. We can't go for it. We can't allow for it. You know, one of the things I learned on my trips to Russia is how much they remember the Nazis. When Hitler invaded uh, the former Soviet Union during World War II, he swept through Ukraine. There was a local nationalist leader there in western Ukraine, right along the Poland border, by the name of Stefan Bandera. He put on a Nazi uniform, gathered his nationalist followers. They joined Hitler's uh, Nazi forces and killed tens of thousands of Jews, Poles, and Russian ethnics in western Ukraine. So today, the Russian people are really clear about the Nazis. And when they see now the U.S. and NATO supporting these Nazis from western Ukraine, arming them, training them, sending them to the eastern side of Ukraine, right along the Russian border, and shelling Russian ethnic people, just last week, they shelled into Russia, into Russia from there, those Nazis did. Mm-hmm. And so Russia has just reached the point where... They say, look, we remember during World War II that we lost 27 million people during World War II. How many did America lose soldiers in World War II? 500,000, which is a lot of people. I'm not in any way saying it's not. But the Russians lost 27 million people. Virtually every person in Russia has a direct descendant who died during that war. They're over it. They're tired. You know, they don't want to... They don't want to go through this stuff again. And I believe not so much as defending what uh, Russia is doing, but understanding and understanding that this all could have been prevented. But I think the United States and UK and NATO made this happen because they knew if they pulled certain strings, if they touched certain buttons, there would eventually be a response. Go back to the RAND Corporation study. Go online. Look for it. RAND Corporation, overextending and unbalancing Russia, and see for yourself. You listen to Latin Ways. To support our work, please visit latinwaysmedia.com and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month. Thank you for listening. We do have a historical example of... um, missiles near the u.s border everybody remembers well not everybody but the cuban missile crisis the u.s went on meltdown when they found the the former ussr had missiles in cuba 
So for them to say, why is Russia panicking with missiles potentially lining their borders is ridiculous. Now, I think we need to find a way to unwind this. And so you, you believe the best way to unwind this would be to perhaps make an agreement when Ukraine doesn't have a role in NATO, therefore avoiding military buildup on the Russian borders. Or is, is there any other way that we need to wind this down? Because this is a very dangerous game we're playing. I mean, Putin says that his invasion is two things, demilitarization and denazification, denazification of Ukraine. I think the way to wind it down is, as you say, to make a promise that Ukraine will not be part of NATO, it'll be a neutral country, mm-hmm. that the United States will pull back, close down its missile launch facilities in Romania and Poland. Just last week, the U.S. forced the Slo- Slovakian government to allow uh, the Pentagon to put a Air Force base in Slovakia. The p- people of Slovakia were out in the streets protesting about it. They don't want a U.S. base there. But the U.S. forced that government to agree to it. You know, we're told that Russia wants to recreate the former Soviet Union. That's a very popular phrase that we hear these days, especially right. in the media. You know, the U.S. this year is spending $1.2 trillion on the military. When you add up other various pots of gold where military money is hidden, when you add it all up, $1.2 trillion a year. Wow. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute that's, that every year lays out who's spending what around the world on the military says that Russia this year is spending $65 billion, the equivalent of what Germany or France spends. So is it really possible for Russia to recreate the Soviet Union at $65 billion when you take the U.S. spending at $1.2 trillion and you add all the NATO countries spending to it? It's well over 60% of the world total, probably close to 70% of the world total. So it's, a, it's numerically impossible. Russia doesn't want to recreate the Soviet Union. Russia just wants secure borders. That's all they've asked for since 2007 but the U.S. continues to reject it. You know, my whole life as an American citizen, North American citizen, I've been, my brain has been colonized by the Russian demonization. I even remember as a kid watching the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons on TV, and even there they were brainwashing me about Russia. The bad guy was Boris Badenov and his woman, Natasha. And they always did very evil things with their Russian accent. So we in this country, and in Canada, I would say as well, and many other Western countries, have had our brains colonized by this corporate-dominated media and this agenda of breaking Russia to pieces. It's been around for a long time. And it's extremely dangerous. I mean, Russia is no... Afghanistan or Iraq, we've talking thousands of nuclear weapons. Nobody wants to see an escalation of this. I, I don't think this can be solved with force. If you try to solve this with force, you're going to have a catastrophic. We only have one planet. We only have one people. Nobody wants a Russian invasion. Nobody wants Russia getting shelled in the eastern part of the country. So I'm asking you, Bruce, where is the anti-war movement on this? Is because we have a Democrat, it's a noble war? Or because we have a liberal government in Canada, it's, it's noble? Like where, where is the anti-war movement? Well, it's divided. Uh, we had a webinar the other night. I was one of the speakers on it. Uh, we had 13 speakers from many different organizations. 
And we had 900 people show up and be part of it. So there are many, many uh, peace people in this country that really do understand what's going on and are very much opposed to it. But we have this particular problem in this country. The uh, Quinnipiac University poll from February 10th through 14th asked Republicans and Democrats, do you support sending U.S. troops into Ukraine if Russia invades? 25% of Republicans said they did support the U.S. sending troops to Ukraine, compared to 42% of Democrats saying that. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of when Obama was president and he was doing his drone strikes throughout Afghanistan and the Middle East and parts of Africa. And the Washington Post did a poll of self-identified liberal Democrats. The question, do you support Obama's drone program? 70% of them said yes. Now, if Trump had been president or George W. Bush had been president and they asked him the same question, those Democrats would have said no. So one of the problems right now within the peace movement in the United States is that many Democrats, not all, but I'd say the damn near the majority of Democrats support their party first and peace second. And so Democrats are largely supporting uh, Biden in this uh, escalation that has been going on not only during his administration, but in the previous administrations, whether it was Trump, whether it was Obama, whether it was Bush before that, it's it's a bipartisan issue in this in this country, supporting this escalation around uh, around Russia. Yeah, I just want to say that there is a tremendous resource that I urge everyone to watch. It's a documentary film called Ukraine on Fire, Ukraine on Fire, by Oliver Stone. He's the executive producer. If you go to YouTube, just type in Ukraine on Fire 2016, Oliver Stone. It brilliantly lays out this whole story, the history of Ukraine, the coup d'etat in 2014, the Nazis being sent to the eastern side to attack the Russian ethnic people. It's really a tremendous film. Right. I really urge everybody, anybody that's serious about really understanding for themselves what's going on, check out Ukraine on Fire, Oliver Stone. I also thank you for all the time you're putting into this, and I also think your network is a tremendous source of good information and, and to be in touch with what's actually happening on the ground. So uh, how can people get information about your work? Well, we have a website called spaceforpeace.org, spaceforpeace.org. And I also publish a popular blog called Organizing Notes, N-O-T-E-S, Organizing Notes, which uh, the address is space, the number four, peace, space four, the number four, peace, dot, blogspot.com spaceforpeace.blogspot.com organizing notes check it out i'm i'm uh, posting many many things uh, in these recent days including this uh, quote do we have time for me to read a quick quote from john pilger sure the, the great journalist he writes this the hypocrites on parade watch them on cnn the bbc read them wall to wall now imagine a strategic enclave of Britons or French or Germans or Americans under violent siege, shelled and terrorized for eight years, would this be tolerated by the rulers of the world?
Yeah. Beautiful. I think he says it all. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bruce, for making yourself available and uh, for the work you're doing. Thank you, Stuart. Good luck to everybody. You have been listening to Conscious Landscapes. To hear previous episodes, to find out about forest bathing, or come on a journey on purpose with us, please visit eco-awakening.com. Bye for now.